Before we hear from God's word, let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, um, thank you for speaking to us and in your kindness, having your word recorded in this book. And so help us come to it um, not as any other book, not as ink on a page, but what it is you're living in active word. That our souls, our bodies, our minds would, would come to your word with, with the, the reverence and, and the hunger of which it deserves. God, we can look at a text like this and we can understand what it's saying. We can understand the details and the truths that it's laying out, but we can't come to believe those and we can't live in light of those apart from the gracious work of the Spirit working upon our minds and our hearts. And so would you send the Spirit to make your word go into good soil today? Father, what every single person in this room needs more than anything else, and this is true whether they um, are far from you but somehow here this morning, whether they have walked with you for, for 32 years, whether they're asking questions about Christ, whether they're, they've just become a Christian God, wherever we're at, what we all need most is, is that we would leave this time more convinced in what Christ has done and more full of hope with what he promises to complete when he returns. And so, Holy Spirit, would you lift Christ high in this place that all of our hearts might be drawn after him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word for five or six minutes, would you stand with me? <laughs> this is God's holy, um, wonderful really true freedom-declaring word today. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression." That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promised may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, 
I have made you the father of many nations. And the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Feel free to grab a seat. All right, I'm going to say something. I'm going to begin this by um, saying something that should uh, and likely will ruffle many of the feathers in the room. So I'm just telling you that on the front end. This should frustrate you, what I'm about to say. What I'm going to say uh, in one, uh, on one hand is, is wrong, is unbiblical, and is a lie. And on another hand is actually very biblical and very true. And what makes the difference is what we mean when we say it. And the reason I'm doing this is I want to set up a very crucial, crucial clarification. And so I'm going to say something. And what I'm asking you to do is to not just get up and leave and then go like write a Yelp review that we're a her- her- heretical church, okay? So, so just, just wait for, for at least a few minutes. So here is the line. We are not justified by faith alone. I don't know how to settle on it. We're not saved by faith alone. We're not made right with God by faith alone. Now, before you storm out, let me try to clarify what I mean with an expression I got from Kent Hughes. Strong faith in weak ice won't hold you, no matter how much you believe. Believing the ice is strong enough to hold you that you step on won't necessarily hold you. Your belief in the ice is not what matters. In fact, you step on thin ice, you just might die. I'll give you a personal illustration of this. Years ago, I was in my front yard, and my two nieces, they live a couple houses down in the cul-de-sac, and they came up and were hanging out in the grass, and they were with their friend. They were about six at the time, and their friend was, was really, even at that point, she's amazing now, but was a, was a really good gymnast. And so we're talking, we're hanging out in the grass, and she's doing somersaults and, and cartwheels and all these things. And then all of a sudden, she just pops a, a front handspring. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. Do you know that I can do that too? And they, and they looked at me, and they, they knew I was lying. And, and so I said, no, I can, I can do it. And I doubled down on, on this claim that I can do a front handspring. And, um, and they said, prove it. And I said, I will right now. And they said, go ahead. And I said, I will. Just give me a minute. And so, so we're, sitting there, we're having this conversation. Of course, I didn't want to like, I want to impress a six-year-old. So, so I told myself I'd never done a, hand, a front handspring before, um, ever, never attempted one. But I was like, how hard can it be? It's basically like just a somersault just in the air. So I'm sure I can, I can do this. And so I told myself, I said, yes, you can do this. I know, Rob, you, you, you're reasonably coordinated. You, you know, I mean, you're, you're not super flexible, but that'll be fine. I'm sure that you can figure this out. And so I'm telling, I'm getting myself all 
worked up. And they're like, are you going to do it or not? And I'm like, yes, it's coming. And you're going to be impressed. And so, so I, I'm getting myself all ready. I'm visualizing it. I'm like, I know I can do this. I believe I can do this. I'm psyching myself up to do this. And I, with all the confidence in the world, I tried. And it was almost fatal. I landed on my head in such a way that like I thought I snapped it. I, I really truly thought I was done for. It didn't matter how much I believed. I believed in the wrong thing. I think at the first service I said my wife has a video. Actually, my wife doesn't have a video of it. My brother actually has a little video of it that none of you will ever get to see. Um, it's not enough to have faith. Just believe. It matters what you believe in. Biblical faith is always directional. There's always an object that it's going after. You, know, you listen to it this year as we hit the campaign you know, season. You're going to listen to a lot of claims on what will save. This is how we can save America. This is how we can save the environment. This is how we can fix our schools. This is how we can save the economy and on and on. All those are super important and they all matter so much. And they're all claims to believe in something. Let me give you the most important question you can ever ask and answer. How can I be right with God? Romans 4 gives the answer. We are not justified by faith alone, but faith in the right thing alone. Or more accurately, the right one alone. And we see this in the text in verse 3. For what does the scripture say? And here it's quoting now um, Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Um, in chapter 15, it says, Abraham believed God. It doesn't just say Abraham believed. He believed God. His belief was directional. His faith had an object. Or consider verse 5, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So our belief is directional. It's in a direction and then it actually gets something. That's what this text is saying. This word counted, it means to be reckoned or credited to. It's used all throughout Romans 4. It's a really, really important word. Just between verses 3 to 8, it's used five times. It's again in verses 9 and 10. We'll see it again at the end. And what it means is to make a deposit to an account. So let me try to illustrate what's going on in this text between verse 4 and verse 5. Every month, Redeemer Church puts a check into my checking account. They, they give me a, a paycheck. It goes in direct deposit at the end of every month. It gets posted into it. And what's happening is I'm getting paid for work that's been rendered. I worked the month. They're not giving it to me before. They're saying, you work. This, these are the wages in which you are due. That's verse four. A few years ago, my wife's uncle passed away and he, he left her a little bit of money. He gave her an inheritance. She experienced in part what Romans five is saying. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Paul is making, the, the author of Romans here is making abundantly clear that the deposit is made not because of anything that Abraham did. And then we go on and we see David, one of the great kings of God's people. He says it's not because of anything David did. And then he's going to go back to Abraham and he's going to bring in a, a, the, the symbol and sign of circumcision. He's saying it's not because he was circumcised. And then he's going to bring in the law, the, the, the word of God. And he's going to say it's not because he followed the word of God. Over and over and over again, he's going to say that the one who does not work receives. The one who is ungodly is credited with righteousness. 
Through faith, we receive that which we did not earn. It's like your spiritual accounts before God go from bankrupt to overflowing. Romans 4 starts with Abraham, shifts to David, and then back to Abraham. But in this moment, in verse 9, he brings in this this sign of circumcision. Is this blessing then only for... So he makes a statement that the righteous shall live by faith, or those who believe God are counted as righteous. So he's making this... We're justified by faith in the right direction. And they says, is this blessing then only for them circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. So he's making this principal statement. But then he brings in this question, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? And what he's doing here, Paul is pointing back to some biblical history. And if you go back to Genesis and you hear this statement in Genesis 15, it says he believed God and he was counted righteous. Well, he didn't get circumcised for another 10 to 15 years. You have to go a few chapters further in Genesis. And so Paul is picking that up and he's talking to a community of people and saying, I want you to keep it straight. He was already righteous before he did this act. The act itself was a symbol of him being righteous. If I apply this to uh, something that we do in the church, baptism. Baptism is very similar to this. You, you come to, to, to believe in, in Christ, and then what you do is get baptized. It's a way of identifying with it. On Easter, by God's grace, we're going to baptize a bunch of people. And every single person that's getting baptized is saying, I'm identifying with Christ. I'm throwing my, my, my hope on Christ. I believe in Christ, and I believe that Christ did what I couldn't do. And he went to a tree, and he, and he, and he died on the cross in my place, and he went to the tomb, and then three days later, he rose again. That's what baptism symbolizes. Like, you're, you're going down into the water. You're saying, I'm with Jesus. Jesus has done it. He, he, he lived the life I was meant to live and he died the death and I'm going in the water and then like he got up out of the grave I'm getting up out of the water and the idea with the water is the symbolism of being washed but that's not when someone gets saved they're pointing to the reality and the point of this is that what do we have faith in we don't have faith in the external things we do as good as they are we don't have faith in our service records we don't have faith in our giving records we don't have faith in our bible knowledge and our doctrinal precision that's not the thing that saves us it can help inform it and shape it and display it, but it's not what saves us. Every baptism is just a visual declaration that justification is by faith alone. And then we get down to verse 13. And this is looking even further back in Abraham's life and then further forward. It says, for the promise to Abraham and to his offspring is that he, that he would be heir of the world. And what that's pointing to is Genesis 12 and this promise that God gave to Abraham. It says, through you, And through your offspring, I will bless the entire world. And then Genesis 15, he believes God is credited as righteousness. Genesis 17, he is circumcised. And you got to go hundreds of years until you get to the next thing, which talks about the law. Let me finish the verse. For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. At this time when Paul was writing, one of the primary communities he was writing to were, were Jewish people. They were people that, that were, were, were named for one of the tribes of, of God. They were, they were marked out for him. And two of their main symbols to say we belong to God were circumcision and the law. And what Paul is doing here as a fellow Jew is saying, as good as those are, they're not enough. You got to believe in the right thing. You're trusting in the wrong thing. 
And then he goes on and he clarifies, for if it is adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And then verse 16, this punchline response, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham. What Paul is doing here in verses 13 through 16 is giving another necessary corrective to where we often run to be justified, our obedience. We often look at how we're doing to determine where we stand before God, to his law. If I'm good enough, then God will accept me. I love this clarification verse 16. Paul is saying God's grace will have none of that. Trying to earn righteousness through the law will never work. As our lives come up against the straight edge of the law, what it shows is how crooked they often are. That's why it depends on faith. It rests on grace. I love John Stott in his commentary on Romans. He provides what I think is a helpful way to think about law and promise. He says this. He says, law language. You shall demands our obedience. But promise language, I will, demands our faith. What God said to Abraham was not obey this law and I will bless you, but I will bless you. Believe my promise. We're justified by faith alone, not by our obeying. We're justified, we're made right before God by trusting what Christ has done alone not by our works. Now, some of you might be like, but wait a second. What about James? Now, if you're like, James, is that your plumber? James is a brother of Christ and an author of another letter in the New Testament, and he also references Abraham in a way that makes that reality of being justified by faith. A lot of times we go to this text, and I'm gonna read it in a sec. This is a last-minute edition, so I don't have slides for it, um, but I'll try to read it slow enough, and we'll unpack it together. What about James? He references Abraham, and it seems so contrary to what Romans 4 is saying. Hopefully, I'll show you that it's not. Let's start with this. James 2.14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Well, golly, that's tricky, because I thought we just said, no, we're just justified by faith alone, and James seems to be contradicting that. Let me, let me try to make it feel even worse for us in more of a conflict. I'll keep reading in James 2, 18 through 24. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And now we get to Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, and now we have the quote back to Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. And now listen to this summary verse. Verse 24 from James 2. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Okay. Like anybody feeling attention or, or confusion or wishing that James 2 just wasn't there? I mean, like, th th like what are we supposed to? You are justified by faith alone and not by works. You are just, <laughs> let me, I don't want to misquote it. I'll say it, say it again. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What do we do with that? 
Here's something that's really important. You got to keep the order right. There's something very crucial happening here. So James uses this reference point to Abraham doing something that was an act of obedience and an act of sacrifice and an act of trust in God. He, he took his son, the son that was promised to be born, and he offered him up to God completely. But when did he do it? Genesis chapter 22. When did God declare Abraham righteous by faith? Genesis chapter, help me out with this one. Genesis chapter starts with a one, ends with a five. Genesis chapter, yeah. Now, we could go back to Genesis chapter 12. I heard someone reference that, and for sure. But, but the, the quotation comes from Genesis 15. The thing he did in Genesis chapter 22 when he took his son and offered him up, this thing that James points to is like, look at, look at what he's doing, came decades after he was already declared righteous. Here's the point. What James is talking about is what the, the Protestant reformers used to, used to say all the time, we are saved by faith alone, but not a faith that stays alone. That, that, that the works that we do are the fruit, not the root of our faith and our salvation. So again, the whole point is not to look at what we do as a confirmation that we are right with God, but to look to to Christ alone. And what happens then is your life begins to shift and change and, and, and the things that come out of us, we do begin to obey. We do begin to follow. But again, it's deadly and discouraging and, and, and alarming and disorienting and unstable to look at the things we do as the thing that makes us right with God. This text over and over and over again, we are righteous by faith in Christ alone. Paul has just taken... 16 verses in Romans 4 to say the same thing. We are only and ever justified by faith alone. You could say he's actually taken the last four chapters of Romans to say the exact same thing. We are right before God by faith alone. Why not just say it once? And just think about it for a while. Why not just say it once? I mean, we can read it one time. We can memorize that verse one time. Why not just say it once? Why talk Abraham and then David and then Abraham again? And do this history lesson on circumcision and the giving of the law, all to make the same point. I can't read Paul, and we can't read Paul's mind, but, but I would suggest it's something like this because it's just so hard for us to believe it. That we really are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And there's nothing else that we bring to the table. It's just so hard to believe it, to feel it, to like live under that banner of grace in our lives, that we are. Right now, no matter how much more you begin to look like Christ, no matter how much more you follow the law of God, you are right now, if you are in Christ, you are fully righteous in him. It's just so hard to believe. Pilgrim's Progress, um, one of my favorite books, is written in the 1600s by John Bunyan. He wrote it actually from prison. He was a preacher. And at this time, the official church, they were, they were condemning uh, like open free preaching. He had to be kind of regulated by the government. And so he defied that and he continued to preach. And they threw him in prison and he wrote Pilgrim's Progress while he was in prison. And the, it became an instant hit. I mean, it just spread really fast. Hundreds of thousands of copies were sold very, very quickly. Um, and it's an allegory of the Christian life. It talks about the, the journey that, that Christians have as they move towards eternity. The, the central character is a, is, a, is a guy named Christian. When we first meet him in the book, he lives in the, the city of destruction. 
and he lives in the city of destruction. And, and one of the details about him is he's got this just unbearable burden on his back, this giant weight that's lashed and strapped him with these ropes that he cannot remove. And he so badly wants to get rid of it. And in the allegory, the, the, the burden represents his sin and his, and his guilt and his shame. And he just can't shake it. No matter what he does and what he tries, he cannot get rid of it. He tries to obey his way to get rid of it. He try, like, tries to ignore it. He just cannot shake this crushing weight on his back. And he runs into a figure named Evangelist. And Evangelist comes to him and says, I can tell you where to go to get the burden removed. I can tell you the play. I can tell you what to do. It's, there, there, there's, a, there's a good king and there's, there's, there's the celestial city. You don't have to live in the city of destruction. There's, a, there's another place to venture towards. And I go, this is what you have to do though. You, you're gonna have to pass through this, this narrow gate, this little wicked gate. You're gonna go and, and you're gonna ask for entry in, into this journey towards the celestial city. And so he, he goes, he's, he's married, he's got four kids. He tries to plead with his, his wife to go and his kids to go and they, they don't in this story. Uh, John Bunyan did write a follow-up book about her story, but, but in this one, Christian finally he's begging people in the town to come. No one will come. So he just says, I gotta go because I cannot live with this weight on me anymore. And so he goes and he finds the gate and he knocks on the gate. And in the, in the text, it's almost like he doesn't know if they're really going to let him through. And, and the gate, it swings open. It says, come on in. And he gets to the other side of the gate, but the burden is still there. It's still lashed to him, and it's, it's, it's a little bit confusing, and it actually stays on him for quite some time. And, and eventually, he gets to, to the cross, and, and he sees the cross, and then at the foot of the cross, the, the, the ropes, they break, and the burden, the, this, this boulder-like burden, it falls off of his back, and he's up on a hill, and it just begins to roll down this hill, and I love it, this, this sin and guilt and shame, this representation, this heavy weight, it rolls all the way into a tomb where it will never come out again. Now, the challenge with this is there's a, there's a lot of debate about, like, well, when did Christian become a Christian? Like, when was he actually converted? Was it, was it at the cross? But, but in John Bunyan, almost every line, there's a verse that it directly relates to, and the gate represents Christ. It's Christ who said, I am the way. Anyone who walks through me. And so there's a lot of different ways of explaining it. I think that probably the, the, the clearest and simplest that I heard, and this came from Derek Thomas, who I've seen in a number of other places, but he says it like this. He says, Bunyan was actually telling his own story in the story of Christian. And where he gets that is from John Bunyan's autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And in his autobiography, John Bunyan talks about this gap that came between when he was converted to Christ, when he trusted in Jesus, and when the, 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 the reality of guilt melted away from him. The weight of his failures before a holy God began to fall off, and he said it was a couple, it was years. He, was a, he came to faith in Christ, but, but it wasn't until he began to understand the depths of what Jesus did on the cross that all of it just began to, to fall away. Now, this isn't everyone's story, that there's this long gap between when you say, I believe, I believe Jesus has done it. We just still feel like, man, we, gotta, we, we still gotta perform. It's not everyone's story, but it's a lot of our stories. The Bible is so clear. We are justified by faith alone, made right before God, declared righteous before God by faith alone. It's an act of God's grace. And yet, we so struggle to believe it. I so struggle to believe it. 
I love the song, Grace Alone, written by the Modern Post. I wish we sang it 18 times every Sunday. I think it's a phenomenal, I know you don't wish we sang it 18 times every Sunday, but I love the song. I, the, so many of the lyrics ring so true for me, particularly the end of the second verse. I worked my fingers down to the bone, but nothing I did could ever atone. And every time we sing that, I stand up here in the front and I, just, I like move my, I move my finger because I just know that feeling. Man, I want to be a good guy. I want to be a good husband. I want to be a good pastor. I want to be a good friend. I want to I honor Christ. I just, man, I just step in the ditch so many times. I'm trying. I'm just so trying. And then the gets to the end of this line. And I work my fingers down to the bone, but nothing I do could ever atone. It couldn't make me right before God, no matter how hard I tried, no matter how much I served, no matter how much I gave, no matter how much Bible I memorized, no matter how many people I shared the faith with, no matter how many times I cared for my kids or cared for other kids or whatever I did, it just couldn't do it. And then it ends with, but Jesus, you paid my debt. You did it. And man, I sing those lyrics as I'm standing here and I believe them until Sunday afternoon. And I go home and I get fuzzy again. And that burden, the, 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 the sin that's buried in the sea, is so far as the east is to the west that God will never drag up again. And the guilt that it has earned, oh, it's, it's in a tomb and buried, buried with Christ. And then I forget it. And what became past tense, I worked my fingers down to the bone becomes present tense. I just keep working my fingers down to the bone. Why does Paul take so many verses to say the same thing? Because we're just so slow to get it. It's so hard to get it. For me, it's one of the reasons, I imagine for you, it's one of the reasons we need verse after verse after verse of saying the exact same thing. Example after example after example. Angle after angle after. To get us to believe this. We are, we are made right with God because of his grace through faith in Christ. Period. Now, verses 1 through 16 answers this one big question. How can we be right before God? The answer, we are justified by faith alone, in the right direction, but faith alone. A follow-up question we might ask is this, how much faith? Like, how much do I have to believe? Like, what degree of confidence do I have to have? And I would suggest to you that verses 17 through 22 help us with an answer. Let me, let me give to you just a summary of how Abraham's faith is described in these verses, which I, I will say on first pass is probably not going to be deeply encouraging to a number of us who believe but also struggle to believe. But let me try to show you why I think it is. Uh, what kind of faith? Here's how it's described for Abraham. A hope against hope. Faith, verse 18. An unweakening faith. faith verse 19. An unwavering faith. Verse 20. A fully convinced uh, trust in God, verse 21. Okay, so hope against hope, unweakening, unwavering, fully convinced faith in God. Is that the only faith that saves us? That, that quality. Well, let me give you some background on Abraham. And this isn't putting these against each other. I think this is illustrating what that faith looks like in real life. Abraham was a, a man of faith. He's held up all throughout the New Testament. I think there might be like 60 references to him as someone of, of faith to, be, to, to look at and to, to emulate in some ways. Um, but but, he, but he, his life, if you dig into the pages of Genesis that lay out this historical account of him, he didn't always seem to be faithful. He was told in Genesis 12 that God was going to bless all the nations from him. A few verses later, he was uh, uh, amongst the new people. His, his wife, Sarah, is there, and he lied about Sarah, saying, no, it's not really my wife, it's my sister. And, hey, Sarah, can you kind of go along with this because you're really beautiful, and they're really powerful, and maybe they'll treat me well because you're really beautiful. Like, I'd say, what? 
You go a few verses later into Genesis 15, you have this, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The son's gonna come. Your wife's gonna get pregnant. But then in the next chapter, they'd been waiting, I think about 12 years at this point and she still hadn't gotten pregnant. And so they took it into their own hands and they did what, what everyone at this time would do if you couldn't get pregnant is they got another woman and he said, hey, you can, you can be intimate with my, my servant Hagar and we'll, th- that's how we'll have a kid. We'll just do it that way. So they do. And then you go a couple chapters later and there's still now, Abraham's about 99, almost 100 years old. Sarah's about 100 years old and God comes to him again and says, Abraham, you're gonna have a, a child with Sarah. You're gonna have a child within a year. And now we don't know, it's hard to read into this detail of the text, but when God says that to him, Abraham, he falls on his face and he laughs. Now that could be he's rejoicing, like, wow, it's finally gonna happen. It could be that for sure. We know that Sarah did laugh and then got called out for it. So we know that she at least like, I don't know about this. And so, but Abraham, he does do this little detail in that text after he laughs. He tries to negotiate with God. He says, hey, how about we actually do this? How about you take Ishmael, my son from Hagar? He can be the one that fulfills the, the, the promise. Now, whatever's going on is you look at these details and then you get to Genesis 22 and you see him offer up his son Isaac and you, and you go back to Genesis 13 and 14 and you see him fight for the glory and righteousness of God. You go back to Genesis 12 and you see God call him out. says, I want you to leave the land of Ur and I want you to go into a new land that I'm promising you. And you see Abraham's life, he never turned around and said, God's not following through, I'm going back to Ur. I'm not even going to try to reconcile for us what Paul says in Romans 4 about Abraham and what feels like bumbling in the right direction. I'm just going to say somehow he's held up as being praiseworthy for a type of faith that says he was made righteous. To me, it's so deeply encouraging. He's not just this paragon of faith that never, ever wavered and never, ever doubted, but here's at the end of the day, here's what happened. He just always pressed into God. And this text... I would suggest to you that it's not primarily about how much faith Abraham had, but about the God that Abraham had faith in. Notice verse 18. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. See, he keeps going back to what God did. Or you could look at the contrast between when he considered and then what he was convinced of. He did not waver in hope as he considered his own body. I mean, he's looking at himself like, I'm 100, my wife is 100, this ain't gonna happen. But he didn't focus there. What he did is it ends with, he became convinced, convinced in what God said he would do. Not his own body, not Sarah, but God. I mean, verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And he grew in his faith. His faith was actually literally, his faith is passive in this point. It's actually being strengthened by, and how does it happen by giving glory to God, saying, here's what it means. I'm, I, I don't know. I'm looking at the circumstances. It doesn't seem like this is ever going to happen. I'm looking at the last 20 years, and it hasn't happened. But God is God, and I'm going to trust him. God is God, and I'm going to trust him. And he just threw himself on there. At the end of the day, it's not about how much faith we have, but the faithfulness of God. What makes us right with God? Okay, well, I know it's all by faith and grace, but I better really believe. But then we just turn our belief into another work that shows, oh, look how strongly I believe. Okay, therefore, God will be okay with me. We are not saved. It's not about how much faith we have. It's about the faithfulness of God. 
We're not saved by the degree of our faith, but the object of our faith. Oh, we're comforted by the degree of our faith. It's not unimportant. The more we believe, oh, the more assurance we experience, the more joy, the more lightness, the more the burden feels like it's buried in a tomb never to return. But that's not what saves us. I love how uh, Lender Keck says it. Paul did not believe in faith. He believed in God and emphasized faith. Not because faith is powerful, but because God is. How much faith? I love how Tim Keller says in Reason for God, he says this. He says, it's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. And he gives this illustration. He, he says, imagine you're on the edge of a cliff and, and your foot begins to stumble off of it. And right before you're about to, to go off the edge, you notice that there is a tree limb sticking out. And that moment, it's, it's, it really doesn't matter how much you believe that branch is going to hold you. It doesn't matter, like, oh, I'm totally convinced. If I grab it, I'll be fine. If I touch it, it's going to crumble. He says, in that moment, all you do is you reach for the branch. And it's either going to hold you or it's not. And where this test goes is the one that will always hold us. That's where it ends. Verses 23 and following. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will also be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespass and raised for our justification. We finally get here in these verses to the substance, to the object of our faith, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And his work, his, his perfect, his life, his perfect active obedience where he never got it wrong, not one time. Righteous from the first breath. An obedience that took him all the way to a cross. We're on the cross. The Bible tells us that, that he became our unrighteousness so that we might be his righteousness, that he became our curse, that we might have his victory. And then he goes to a tomb, and three days later, he rises again. This text says he was handed over, he was crucified for our trespasses, all the spiritual debt we had. And then he was raised for our justification. When it says that here at the end of verse 25, what it's saying is that he was raised as a validation that God had accepted the payment. And that's who we throw ourselves on. Notice the word counted again. It's picking up the idea first introduced in verse three, given that which has not been earned. And what are we accounted? Christ's righteousness. His active, lifelong obedience. How do we get it? Faith. We just say, I believe. We throw ourselves on him. And what we get is, Verse 1 of chapter 5, we'll look at it again next week, and I'll, I'll end with this. What we get is this, peace. Peace with God through Jesus Christ. Man, see yourself at the foot of the cross like Christian did. See, see yourself with that heavy weight of all our failures and all our mess-ups and all our screw-ups and all our rebellions. And see Christ on the cross. Man, went to the tomb, rose from the dead, he's raised for your justification. Those, those lashes can come off. That weight, and just see it just tumble. And see it tumble, not just down the hill, but to the, to the edge of a, a cliff, and over the cliff, and into a deep ocean, to the bottom of a trench. 
one of my favorite hymns, Rock of Ages. It really captures the heart of Romans 4, that we are justified by faith alone. No works, no works. Now that works don't matter. We'll talk about it. They just ain't the thing that justifies us. Just Jesus. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal, no respite, no. Could I be so zealous for God and never stop? Could my tears forever flow? Could I weep over my sin enough to fill all the oceans of the world? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. I love this chorus response. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to his cross I cling. Come to thee for dress, helpless. Look to thee for grace. And he gives it. To every single one in this room, he'll give it. Just reach out for the, reach out for the branch. Reach out for the, reach out for the cross. Let me clarify the opening claim that we are not saved by faith alone with just a little bit more detail. Because of grace alone, we are wonderfully and perfectly and completely saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Because God did it all from first to last. It's all to his glory alone. Weak faith and, or strong faith and weak eyes can't hold anybody. But even weak faith and the strength of our Savior will hold all of us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, grant us the grace to believe that Christ is enough. In those lowest moments, in those sober moments, in those raw moments, in those real moments, in those striving moments, in those working our fingers to the bone moments, we, 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 Christ is enough. That we don't need to come, we're not gonna boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom. But teach us to boast in Christ alone, his death and resurrection. Verse after verse after verse, chapter after chapter, story after story, song after song, lyric after lyric, weekly receiving of communion, all to proclaim the same thing, we are made right with God through faith alone. Make that truth so real to us today. Let the burdens fall off for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.